over the years I've had people come to me and, and talk about church ideas that they have or pastoring a church or planting a church and, and they've told me their solution uh, is if we could just go back to the early church and the practices of the early church, all would be better. Now, certainly we need to look at scripture and we need to model a lot of things on the way the early church was supposed to function. And I've even fallen into the trap. If I could just model everything like the early church, all problems would be solved. I don't know if you've ever thought the same thing. Usually when I am presented with this from people, I, I follow up with the question, have you ever read the New Testament? <laughs> because most of what we have exists because there were problems in the early church, not simply to encourage those churches that existed. You look through the, the New Testament and you can find these issues of pride coming out. There's, there's certainly uh, things that the way they should be, but pride comes out, sexual immorality and, and issues around that. There are leadership quarrels that go on and challenges to authority uh, and authority issues that people have. There's just outright heresy uh, at times, withholding of funds, that goes on. Uh, disordered worship, uh, combined with one of those disordered areas of worship, drunkenness during worship, particularly the Lord's Supper, uh, then, and then food sacrificed to idols, what to do about that? Social inequality on display, uh, not recognizing Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, and what that really means to live that in the, the church. Disunity within the church. And by the way, that's just the church in Corinth that I just outlined for you. And we're going to look at the church of Corinth a bit today. We, you should be at, at day 15 in the community Bible experience if you're following along in your groups. If you're not, that's okay. What you want to do if you're really far behind is just pick up on week four. Okay, day 16, just start there if you're super far behind. If you're not, the weekends are really good. I'm four pages behind right now, but I had to use Saturday and Sunday to get to that point, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are great for reading. Thursday and Friday, it just seemed to just fall off the grid a little bit. It happens to us all. But you can catch up. Um, I'm going to work on it today. By this point, in the community Bible experience, if you're following along with your bookmark, uh, you should have read Luke, Acts, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and half of Romans. That's what you've done. So good job so far if you're on track. If you're not, it's okay. Keep at it. You're doing a blessed thing. You're doing a blessed thing as you read, and this will not come back void. Imagine, I mean, we are as a people committing ourselves to reading the New Testament and studying it together. And I know um, from what I'm hearing from a lot of you, this is refreshing. It's exciting to read it more like a novel, less like an encyclopedia, right? We're reading it without all the big and the little numbers, and, and that's good. It's, it it kind of washes over you in a different way. And I know for some of you, it's frustrating because we're used to footnotes and cross-references and study notes in there. And one of the things that tends to happen as we read scripture, I think, is that we zero in on the parts and miss the whole sometimes. And I fall into the same trap. So you can go back and study, use the study notes, all that, that's good. Go back and study those things on the parts you don't get. I commend that. But I even discover when I prepare uh, sermons, I have to mentally shift and think, okay, if I want to know what Paul means by redemption, if I want to know what Jesus means by blessed, I don't need to get out a concordance and start there and say, okay, what are all the different ways that redemption gets used in the whole Bible? No, I want to know how Paul uses it. 
And probably I want to know how Paul uses it in that one particular letter, first and foremost. And probably he defines it in some way. And so that's the exciting thing about it is we have to use our eyes as we look at this and really pay attention to how the parts fit in with the whole. I think it's exciting. I'm glad we're doing it. And by the way, I pointed last week, I'll make a correction, to a sticker on the front of my Bible and said, you can look there and find the web address. This is the promotional uh, copy, so you don't have the sticker. I'm sorry. It's on your bookmark inside. You still can find all the resources you need. We're going to focus in on 1 Corinthians this morning. We're going to look at just chapter 4. So if you're going to follow along on your mobile device, on in your Bible, uh, I don't have the page in the books of the Bible for you. Uh, I'm sorry, but... Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we're going to hang out there. Got a couple other references I'll bring up to you, but if you're in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, you are golden for the whole sermon, okay? That doesn't mean it's short. That just means that's where we're sticking around. Now, let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Paul says, as he's rounding out some some issues about leadership, uh, he says, this then is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time... Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. I feel like Paul is having what we could say is a Popeye moment, the way we hear it. I am what I am and that's all that I am, right? He's, he's saying, don't judge me. Only God can judge. And I, I want to start first and foremost, not by what Paul means, but what we hear too often in our culture and in our world today, and perhaps even in the room. What we hear is Paul saying, nobody can judge me but God. You can't, you can't, and you can't. Only God judges me. Now, we often, when we hear that in our culture, we hear the echoes of the words uh, of Jesus brought up, don't judge lest ye be judged. So that just nails the case down, right? Nobody can judge anybody else. But I'm not convinced that's what Paul's saying. But that's what we hear. Because if you look at Jesus' words, what does he say? Don't judge lest ye be judged, because by the measure that you judge, that's going to be used against you. Well, you can judge. He's saying, just be real careful how you do it. Because you know it's going to come back at you. Paul is not actually saying don't judge. But sometimes we hear that. We hear that outside of the church, and it comes into the church too. We hear, I'm beautiful the way that I am. This is how God created me. We start to theologize about it. I was knit together in my mother's womb. Great, from Psalm 139. But we start to take that in ways perhaps it shouldn't go. God created me the way I am. I'm beautiful the way I am. Society can't dictate how I should be. You can't dictate how I should be. Don't judge. Nobody has that right. Sounds like Paul is is very much saying the same thing. But I want to point out, and I'll point out a little bit, that Paul uses judge in 1 Corinthians alone in multiple senses. So I don't think that when you start looking at the broader picture, looking at the whole, that it's simply don't judge. And furthermore, when we use this, because we use this a lot in our culture at large, and it comes into the church, don't judge, 
I have no right, you have no right, you can't judge me, you're a sinner too, right? Actually, we judge all the time. The very statement, you have no right to judge me, utilizes a lot of judgments to make that statement. If you think about it, a new term to me is the idea of executive function or executive judgment that we all have. It's sort of a a set of of operating uh, mechanisms within each person that we have these executive functions or we make executive judgments all the time. So there are things like regulating our impulses. We make judgments all the time in that. Regulating our emotions. Make judgments all the time there. Uh, We regulate our sense of direction. Our sense of right and wrong. We make judgments all the time on those things. Even our time management. There are judgments made at every turn in our lives. So it's not simply a matter of we can't judge in this life. We better judge in this life. We'd better make conscious choices like that at at lots of points. Should I eat this or should I not eat this? Many of you know my love for sriracha. Our four-year-old had the bottle uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said, I'm going to put some on a hot dog before we can stop him. A whole lot on the hot dog, and he ate it. He doesn't like sriracha anymore. So, (laughs) sad moment. Hot sauce, if you don't know what that is, by the way. But we make these executive judgments all the time. Should I eat this? Should I not eat this? Some of us need to use executive judgments all the time on the filters in our brain, right? There are words in here, should they come out of my mouth or not? That's an executive decision or an executive judgment. If I'm listening to my GPS and it says, should I take a left or a right? We don't respond to it and it says, take a left. We don't say, you have no right to judge me, GPS. I'm going to take a right. We don't do that. We make a judgment, don't we? If a kid is about to walk out in traffic, we never consciously think, oh, if I tell him he shouldn't go out in traffic, that's judging him. I can't do that. I have no right to do that. We don't do We make judgments all the time. So it's not simply that we can't judge in this life. Paul is at least saying, I think when you get to the point, in the end, be found faithful by God. God's going to judge. In the end, you want to be found faithful by God. That's the one judgment that matters. So he's not saying you can never judge, but he's saying that's, that's what matters most. Paul uses this term judgment or the word judgment in a variety of ways. I count seven sections that he uses it in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'll just give you a few examples to give you an idea of the breadth with which he uses it. But it, it narrows us down to where we need to go. Paul begins in chapter 2. He says, for I resolved. That means I judged. I made a decision. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he made a decision, a discerning judgment to to know only Jesus and him crucified. Next, in chapter 5, when Paul is talking about the man who's been living with his stepmother and sleeping with his stepmother, he says, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment on this guy. And then later he'll say, throw him out. If he's not going to give up, throw him out. He has passed judgment. So clearly we can't simply see what he's saying in chapter 4 and say, he says, never judge. He passes judgment. So clearly he means more than just don't judge. Chapter 6, when Paul is talking about uh, how people are going to court, 
uh, taking church disputes, but taking them out into the court, which would be in the agora, the public forum, which were not necessarily about truth as much as just being right in the ancient world. Uh, he's saying, why in the world are you guys doing this? He's like, he says, are there, is there nobody who can judge between you within the church? Do you lack that ability? And you're doing this in front of non-believers? He says, stop it. So obviously they can judge within the church. He says, you better do it. Then he, he, uh, one other section is when he's talking about the Lord's Supper and how there's some significant problems in how they're celebrating the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. He says, if you were more discerning, it's the same word, judge, judging between you. If you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment, he says. Nevertheless, when we are judged, and this is key, he says, by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. And that matters. When the judgment that needs to come comes within church life, it's that we're being disciplined, we're being brought back in, reined in so that we can walk with God, so that that final day, the day of the Lord, is not going to be a surprise to us. Oh, God, I didn't know you were going to judge by these standards. No, so we'll know. So that we'll walk in step with God up until that point. And Paul, he says in verse 2, and we'll come back to it a little bit later, but he says, uh, he says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We want to be found faithful. That's the point. On the day of the Lord, be found faithful. That's what matters above everything. I don't know if as you're reading the community Bible experience, if you've considered, if Paul were writing a letter to me, what would it say? I, I thought about it this week. I didn't answer the question very deeply, I'll tell you that. But it's an interesting question. If Paul were writing a letter to me, what would he say? Or maybe uh, if Paul were writing a letter to us as a church, because he writes to both individuals and churches, what would Paul say to us? Would it be simply a letter of encouragement or would there be any kind of judgment lines like this? Like, come on, guys, tighten it up. Rein it in pull it together. What would be in a letter like that? But then it, it could come to a, a more perhaps uh, acute question of, is there something? Is there something God is trying to tell me or you that for whatever reason I'm blocking because I don't want to be disciplined, because I don't want to correct, or because I just, I'm closed off. I'm, I'm really just not willing to hear. I'm unable to hear. Is there something that's, that's going to make that goal to be found faithful difficult because I'm not willing to let it in. And so let me tell you the long and short of it this morning. If you claim Christ, you will be judged. You might say, Pastor Evan, I thought you were supposed to preach the good news. That doesn't sound like good news. If you claim Christ, you will be judged. That actually is better news than you think if we're going to be found faithful on the day of the Lord. If we're going to course correct at regular intervals to walk with God. This is not going to be bad news. It'll be good news. And it gets better when you get to verse 5 of what Paul says. But the other truth that needs to be stated is, if you're not walking with Christ, if you don't know Jesus Christ, on the day of the Lord, you will be judged. And that's the bad news. And so I'd rather stand here proclaiming to you, let's all be on the good news side of that. If you don't know Jesus, let's go for it. And if you do, let's make sure we course correct and walk in a path that's going to have us found faithful on the day of the Lord. And let me tell you just a couple thoughts I have as I read the text this week. If you claim Christ, you need to live by eternal standards. I think that's what Paul's telling us. The Corinthians had many problems 
you read the book, you find them out pretty quick. They had all kinds of problems. I'm, I think, I'm thankful that Paul is encouraging, but he also directly addresses issues they need to deal with. The Corinthians live in a, a community uh, that was, by today's standards, would be kind of like one of the, you know, you have New York, Los Angeles, big cities. They'd be a little bit more of the Chicago, that size. So bigger, uh, bustling, uh, cosmopolitan place, maybe not the biggest of, of the big communities, but important and certainly important in their own minds. They were prideful. They were into freedom and freedom of the individual and those sorts of things. And that mattered greatly to them. They also were Greek in thinking and philosophy, which affected how they understood what Paul said. And that matters for us. So they get this preaching from Paul about the good news, the kingdom promises here. The way that they understand that appears to be from what Paul's writing to them, that the kingdom promise is fully here, that they can enjoy everything. There's no hope beyond the moment, basically. It's, it's here or whatever's left isn't all that much better than what's already happening. So they can indulge now in the kingdom promise. Seize the day. Now, how they get there is that they have a, a, a sort of a Greek cultural overlay that they set over this faith, some of which still lives with us, but I won't get into all that. But the Greek philosophical understanding for them was that the body, matter, the flesh, is bad. And the soul stuff inside is good. And there's a giant separation between the two. Right? We're basically entombed inside. The soul is entombed inside the body in some way. And the goal is to essentially be free eventually of all of that. Now, what that meant, and you can see this playing out in the Corinthian church in two completely different ways. On one side, you have what we call asceticism or deprivation or, or abstaining from anything that has to do with the physical. It doesn't matter anyways. We ought to just keep it at bay and focus all energy on what's internal, and that's it. So Paul has to address in chapter 7, you know, relations between husband and wife, uh, things like that, like, well, be careful, guys, about telling everybody to abstain. Um, that, that's not exactly what I meant. On the other side, you can see that, that philosophically this plays out as hedonism for them. So on the one side, Paul has to say, well, wait a minute, guys, you've you got to take care of your body. You've got you to take care of your marriage. You've got to take care of these things. On the other side, you can see that hedonism is just let's indulge in every pleasure that's out there because the body is totally separate from the soul. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want with the body. The church can also have a group of people, uh, one where the uh, uh, son-in-law is, is sleeping with his stepmother or son is sleeping with his stepmother and the church applauds it. Hey, good job. What, do you, what does it matter? So you got this total, and, and, and so Paul has to stress, hey, wait, don't get drunk at the Lord's Supper and also the body matters and the resurrection wasn't just an idea. It's actually going to happen for you too. Paul has to stress all of these for the church. There's a separation and we have to live by eternal standards in our decision-making. They're not, in this case, we have to in the way we do things. And, and we can give in to certain things that, that bind us to time without recognizing the eternal consequences sometimes. So how that works out for us, one example is uh, this idea of, we we're talking about being, uh, not being judgmental, which means we don't receive anything that's going to allow us to become more like Christ. We're going to block things that we don't want to hear, but that ends up blocking a lot of things we should hear along the way. And so we have this idea, God created me, this is the way I should be, from my mother's womb, that's it, this is what I am. 
And we end up just seizing the day as, well, we don't really need to grow in Christ if that's who we are, if we're already mature, if we're already where we should be. And, and so we don't live into a future hope. We just do what we want to do now. And if the word works for me, good. If it doesn't, I'll just ignore it. No big deal. We're living by now standards. We don't have a hope that we're living into. We need to live into that hope. And Paul's solution to that, he says, guess what? The mysteries of God have been revealed to you. That doesn't mean we know everything about God. Certainly not. But it does clue us in. He says, you guys know that God's up to more. God's up to more than just this moment in time. God's got something much greater planned for those who are in Christ, who walk that path, and who stay close to what God has in store. Live like you know it. That's what Paul is telling them. Don't just give in to total abstaining from everything. Don't just give in to total hedonism. You've got to figure out what the the moral constraints are. You've got to figure out what the ethics are. You've got to figure out what kingdom living looks like. Let me tell you a few things about that. And and verse 5 will tell us that God knows our motivation. He knows why we're doing what we do. He knows why we're we're on about the things we're on about. And God's going to judge according to those standards. So we need to live accordingly. Turns out, verse 5 also tells us God will bless according to those standards. There's your good news. We keep in line. We walk the path of discipleship with Jesus Christ. There's a blessing to follow, greater than anything we could imagine now. Live by eternal standards. But there's a little more to it than that and how we get to that point. We have to talk about that's the destination. How, how, what's the journey like? Uh, a number of years ago when, when our family moved to Colorado to take on a, a role at a church there, we just had two kids at the time, um, and uh, some friends of ours about three months into being there said, hey, we want to take you camping. We know a great place. It's three hours away, uh, but it's really cool. It's just that you know, timber line just a little above a lake. You can see the kids running around. You, it's, it's a wonderful place. So, okay, great. We'll go three hours away. Uh, we needed four-wheel drive for the occasion. Fortunately, we both had it. Um, so we go a couple hours back and then down and then over even further west getting off the main road. And then we had to get off that main road onto a gravel road and off that gravel road onto another gravel road. And, and we are almost three hours in. You have to hang a left at the ghost town. We're about to the ghost town. I was super excited to see the ghost town. And guess what? The road was washed out. Not just a little bit, a lot washed out. There's no passing this road. There's no going around. And so we have to figure out, okay, well, we're pretty far away now. Uh, Nighttime will come eventually. We've got to figure something out. And we've got all the camping gear and our kids ready to go. Let's do this. So we have to go about 45 minutes back after that, and there's no camping. I mean, it was the weekend to be out, I guess. Every single campsite was taken. Go back, find a place. But it's a, you park the car, and it's a mile up to the campground. And we weren't backpacking. We were outfitted for car camping with little kids. So let's just say I made a lot of trips and I fell down the hill only once in the process of that and and, uh, it hurt. But we made it. But wouldn't it have been nice to have the knowledge ahead of time, the roads washed out, and the campsite you're going to find is great, but you might need to pack differently. Wouldn't that have been nice information ahead of time? I think so. Looking back, we had a great time. It would be nice to know how to get to this point, wouldn't it? And as the body of believers, we're supposed to help each other get to this point, to be found faithful, to live by eternal standards along the way. And so we have to ask questions about ourselves when it comes to things like judgment, like who's allowed to speak into my life? 
what kind of word will I let in? Will I only let good things in? Or will I let difficult words in that will help me course correct? Will I let people speak into my life who can correct me? Who could even discipline? Who could train? Who could rebuke? And that's the second thing. We need to be able to give and receive words of correction well as Christ's body so that we're not surprised on the day of the Lord, so that we walk in that direction, living that life now. The Corinthians, they had problems. We already flagged a few of them. One of their other problems is they already thought they were mature. We've arrived. What more do we need to do to grow in Christ? They, they are mature in faith, no further input needed. And Paul gives them a couple of sobering reminders. So verse 1 again. Paul says, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, that word servants that's there. Uh, John Barclay, the commentator, uh, rightly notes, he says that this uh, slave is a good translation, and it's the kind of slave who occupied the lowest spot as a slave. He, he flags it as somebody who sat on the very bottom level of a trireme, like the ships that you row, you know, the guys in the bottom rowing the ship, where it's hot and it's hard work, and they're the lowest in there. Paul says we've got humility about our task. We are as that, the lowest of the low but in God's employment. But then he goes on and and he says, guess what? Verse two, now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Some of you might have uh, your stewards in your translations, that you've been given a trust, your stewards. And this is actually a complete opposite. It's still in the slave class or the servant class, but it's somebody who's at the highest end, who's in an estate that has plenty to take care of, and they're entrusted with taking care of that estate and all that goes into it. They've been given a lot of trust to make sure that the master's uh, place is well-tended, not squandered. And so this morning, you heard from Genesis 2, where you get the same concept put forth for us at the creation of, of the universe, where God creates Adam and Eve, and he says, now you're stewards. It's the same concept. That, that language in Genesis 2 means, I'm the king, and you are my ambassadors, in a land that belongs to me. You do what I ask you to do in that land. So too, Paul says, we understand we have a high level of responsibility here. We're as low as they come. We understand the humility of the task, but we are stewards of something magnificent and we will take care of it and we will do it together with you. But Paul also says, if you keep reading 1 Corinthians, we're given the right to judge one another in the body of Christ. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 5.12, I'll just read it for you. It's very short. Paul says, about after talking about them going to, to court, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person among you. Sorry, the court comes a little bit after that. That's the guy sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, no better, by the way. He, so what business is it, of, is it of mine to judge? He says, we're supposed to judge inside. Inside, excuse me. And Paul reiterate that very point. We actually are supposed to course correct one another. We are supposed to speak words that are going to change us to become more like Christ. And Paul, his judgment, you can read this both in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is clearly rooted in love. It's not rooted in anything else. It's not grounded anywhere else. Because in verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, uh, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father 
through the gospel. I was a little perplexed by that as I read it last week. I thought, well, he's not acting like God the Father. What does he mean? 10,000 guardians, that's the way to say the maximum amount guardians are. Again, in the slave class, people who would make sure a kid got to and from school or to and from where they needed to safely, but they're not the father. Paul says, he's comparing, my relationship with you, I want to nurture you like a father. I want you to grow in this faith as if I were your father. I care that much. I don't give up on you. That's what Paul is saying. And we are supposed to course correct to give judgment within the body of Christ where it matters. And the ways that we do that, simply put, we do it with love when it has to be done. I did a hospital call for a guy, a cold call a bunch of years ago, um, who, who basically he told me he had estranged everybody in his life and, and church life was no different. Um, he said, you know, if I see something wrong, I just say it right away. So he'd be sitting in a worship service. The pastor would say something he didn't like. He said, right after he's done with the sermon, he comes down off the stage. I go right to him in the middle of the crowd and I tell him, you're wrong for this reason and this reason and this reason. We do not give judgment that way. Now we do it like Matthew 18 and Galatians 6, where it says, look, you you correct by pulling someone off to the side and saying, hey, guess what? Here's something I need to say. Here's something we need to talk about. Can I talk about it with you? We do it in love. We don't do it in the middle of the assembly. Second, though, we have to be able to receive receive judgment gracefully from people to receive a word from others, to work with it, to grow because of it. And, and if we're too blocked off, we can give in to a couple things. One is a false sense of maturity. I've arrived. I don't need a word from anybody. I am who I am. I, I am as mature as I'm ever going to be, unless I choose to be more mature. But it's all up to me. Or we give in to pride, which kind of sounds like the same thing, I think. And we end up blocking the, tr- the move to become more like Christ, and unnecessarily so. The interesting thing, though, I think, is if we block judgment, we also can block grace and the blessing that God has for us. So my good word today is don't block the discipline and the words that might be difficult that God has for you and for me. Live towards God's grace. It's there. Live towards the words that God has for us, whether within the body or straight from God, that we would be more, like, more Christ-like because of it. And Paul says then in verse 5, he says, Judge nothing before it's appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. That's the goal. That's what's going to happen. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. God's grace, as it turns out, is big enough to bring us into his family. It's bold enough to ask us to live a certain way. It's rich enough to offer us uh, more than we can experience in this age. That's the grace and the blessing that we're offered. And we live in a generation that hates judgment. I don't like it any more than you do. It's tough to hear hard words. We love praise, don't we? We love to hear I'm proud of you. We love to hear good job. We love to get the plaques when we deserve it. We love to get the commendations. We love to get the ribbons and the medals. Those things are good. But we need to be corrected along the way and moved in the right direction along the way in order for those things to actually happen, in order for that blessing to finally take place. When the day of the Lord comes, will you receive blessing? Will it be good news for you? 
as the body of Christ, it's our responsibility to, to course correct and bring each other in so that we'll be. To bring more people in to that good news so that we all, we're not surprised on the day of the Lord. When we don't want to judge, we're often just reacting. When we don't want to be judged especially, we're often reacting. But you know what's interesting? Uh, I found this with my kids, and I found this when people have spoken words to me. When somebody says something like that where, where we need to correct, I typically know it needs to be corrected. You ever find that? Somebody says, I, I'm noticing this in you. Gosh, I think you're right. We know. Let's do our best to live, to be found faithful in God's kingdom, in God's sight. And let's start now in living that way, calling each other to who we're supposed to be, to how we're supposed to operate in the kingdom as God's people. That's the message that 1 Corinthians is giving us. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to be found faithful. We know that the day of the Lord will come. That's the first word we need to give one another is that you, you will send your son back. There will be a day when we are accountable and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God, today bring us into your presence, draw us closer to you, correct us where we need to be corrected. Within this body of believers, put those uh, in our, our midst who can encourage us in the right direction, but who can also be trusted to speak and help us draw closer to your son and look more like your son, Jesus Christ. Even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, God. Grant us the power of your Holy Spirit as your people, that that would be the goal and we would realize that. It'd be, we would we see good news on the day that your son returns, experiencing your blessing both now and in the days to come. And to live into the grace and hope that you have not moving away from it because of pride, because of false maturity, because of any of those other things that we can be deceived by in this world, but moving towards you with every step. We pray this all in your name. Amen.